The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, for geeks like you and me, these are wonderful, wonderful times because this is the time when international relations and geopolitics are changing right before our very eyes. Things that we never thought we would see five, six, seven years ago are happening, I mean, just in monumental fashion. And the speed with which things are changing is remarkable as well. So the rise of Donald Trump, the rise of populist politics, the rise of Xi Jinping, all of that coming together to create a totally new geopolitical environment. And today we're going to be talking about some of the core concepts of Chinese foreign policy that date back decades to the 1950s and how they're playing out in Africa today, but under the pressure and in the context of this new international environment that we're in today. So let me just kind of give a little bit of a of an introduction to something called the non-interference doctrine. This is something that we've talked about on the program for a long time. Now, we're not going to go into deep academic on this. So if you're not interested in this, hold on. This is going to be a fascinating show. But back in <laughs> 1955, uh, Joe and Light. Sometimes, Kobus, I got to put those warnings out there because people yes. listen five minutes in. They're like, I don't want to listen to this. No, no, no. This is going to be yeah, interesting. Not, not everyone is as used to being bored as academics are. That's right. No, no. But trust me, this is going to be fascinating. Back in 1955, a former Chinese premier, Zhou Enlai, he kind of came up with this concept of the non-interference doctrine. And it's this principle that's guided Chinese foreign policy for the past 60 some odd years uh, that says basically they're not going to interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. Now, back in the 1950s, China was a desperately poor country. And even though it was exporting revolution, even to Africa and Maoism was something that was kind of being sent around the world to other parts as part of the Cold War, for the most part, China did not really intervene in other countries, for the most part. And again, this is really subject to interpretation and how you see things. So take a little bit of this with a grain of salt, but this is the party line in what the social studies textbooks will tell you. For about 60 years, they, they lived by it. They really didn't bother their neighbors that much. And frankly, they were too poor to really do anything about it. Now, let's fast forward into the 21st century. China becomes a lot richer China now has a need for energy. China has interests that are truly global. And guess what, Kobus? Here we are in a world now where China now is confronted with this a big, big challenge to the non-interference doctrine and how it defines intervention and interfering in other countries. So this premise is coming under tremendous pressure and nowhere is it happening more so than in Africa. Yes, you know, the, the, one of the reasons why China um, pushed the non-interference doctrine so much is that in the first place, it didn't want anyone to interfere in, in its own domestic politics, and it still doesn't. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, you know, when it was speaking with Africa in the, in the 50s and 60s, Africa was, was being interfered with by external powers to a crazy level, you know. So not only the colonial powers 
but also the US and the Soviet Union were all all had a hand in in different parts of Africa. Um, so you know, so the, the promise to never interfere with internal affairs and to to respect the sovereignty of other countries, you know, that that carried a lot of weight, and it was this, you know, it was part of of China's self self outreach that it's not just the same, not just another northern imperialist power. Um, that had to change a little bit as China, in in the especially the the early two thousands, started getting much deeper into multilateral cooperation. You know, China China saw um, partnership and membership of of large multilateral multilateral international organizations like the UN, for example, and the W. WTO, other and other of these kind of wide wide ranging organizations, as really key to being seen as a legitimate state in the world. And once you are a state, and especially if you're such a uh, you know if you're a UN Security Council member, then you know participation in multilateral peacekeeping and other kind of other of these these activities becomes a bigger part of your life. And that then you know starts raising a lot of questions about what non interference is going to mean. Yeah, so it's very, very difficult to overstate how important and how central the non-interference doctrine is to Chinese foreign policy. But here's where it gets tricky. How do you define interference? So, for example, when the Chinese were selling weapons to the South Sudanese government, is that interfering in the internal affairs? Because that's actually, you know, swaying or influencing a civil war. When the Chinese bought some newspaper ads in Iowa, just in the United States, to try and persuade Americans uh, about the effects of the uh, the tariffs. Now it comes right in the middle of an election season. Is that interfering in the internal affairs? When I lived in Vietnam, boy, listen to the Vietnamese, and they will talk to you about a thousand years of the Chinese interfering in their country. Now, again, this is where perception comes into it. But Africa is so fascinating because China is trying some things there that it's not doing anywhere else. So we are very, very excited to have on the program for the first time Dr. Obert Hodzi, who is a visiting researcher at the African Studies Center at Boston University and a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of World Cultures at the University of Helsinki in Finland. And Dr. Hodzi has just finished a book that is just about to go live on on sale. And we're very excited to kind of introduce this to you. The End of China's Non-Intervention Policy in Africa. Dr. Hodzi, thank you so much for waking up very early to join us on the program for the first time. And we're very excited to talk to you about this fascinating topic. Thank you, Eric. Thank you very much. Okay, so, you know, we've laid out, we've set the table for you on the basics of what the non-interference doctrine is, the challenges that it's coming over. Uh, you definitively declare in the title of your book, The End of China's Non-Intervention Policy in Africa. Um, I suspect that a lot of people in Beijing would disagree with your assessment, but go ahead and make the case right off the bat for why you think China now is abandoning a 60-plus-year-old foreign policy doctrine. Uh, the first thing is obviously that China is, as Corbus has said, China has been, uh, has changed a lot from what it was during Mao's time. And the question has never been really whether China intervenes. China has always been intervening. The question is when and how does it intervene? Uh, just one point to, to, before I get to your question is that in the 1960s, particularly 1966, Chinese diplomats were expelled from Ghana. And the reason why they were exposed and Ghana cut diplomatic ties with China is because they claimed that China was uh, training dissidents who were going to destabilize uh, countries in Africa that were more aligned to the Soviet Union. 
and uh, Benin, Kenya, Tunisia, and the Central African Republic followed. And the main reason was that China was interfering in their internal affairs, or rather, as I put it, intervening in their internal affairs. So uh, fast forward, China has changed a lot, and China is now a big power. China has interests that extend beyond its territory and beyond its region. And the thing now is that you have conflicts that are directly affecting Chinese nationals and Chinese interests. And previously, African governments have been able to protect Chinese interests and Chinese nationals. But in Libya, in South Sudan, and in Mali, now we're seeing more Chinese people being killed and Chinese investments being disrupted as a result of conflicts in those countries. And that's putting a lot of pressure on China to creatively redefine what it means by interference and by intervention. And what I talk about in my book is how China has tried to justify why it has taken actions that it previously uh, regarded as intervention. For instance, meeting opposition leaders, uh, sending uh, you uh, sending uh, its troops to African countries, supporting French intervention in Mali. All these things are being done as a way of balancing its interests, really balancing, you know, trading this thin line between intervening to protect your interests and also keeping the rhetoric that we are non-intervention power. I wonder if you could break that down a little bit. Um, how, for example, do you see the the differences and overlaps between between intervening as a, as a foreign country in um, in a country in Africa and being present there as part of a multilateral UN peacekeeping force? Like, are, are, do you tend to argue that those two are roughly the same thing, or that there are significant differences between them? I think uh, one way to put it is to is to go back and 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 talk about and and look at what does China call intervention? So we all agree, and Chinese agree, that uh, peacekeeping was regarded as intervention by China, and things have changed. And now China is the biggest supporter of intervention. It has been of peacekeepers. It has been sending its peacekeepers abroad. And why is it sending these peacekeepers now? And we need also to understand the politics and the rise of Xi Jinping and the geopolitical uh, conflict between the U.S. and trying to extend its, its influence. The reason is that China is seeing peacekeeping as a more legitimate way of achieving the objectives that it would otherwise want to, to achieve. Send its troops, help its troops to get combat training, but also help to protect Chinese investments by creating a stable environment in countries where conflicts might erupt and end up disrupting its investments. So I, I think the whole idea is to look at the purpose that China is changing its positions on peacekeeping and working with multilateral organizations in conflict areas, which it didn't agree with in the, in the beginning. So that change is what I'm looking at. And how do we explain that change is that China basically wants to protect its interest. And if you are using multilateral institutions to achieve your national objectives and using actions that you previously said these are intervention, then I, I think by their own definition, they are actually intervening in those countries' internal affairs. 
But uh, the reason that I'm asking, and, and just mm-hmm. just to just to pursue that a little bit further, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that uh, you know there seems to me to be a difference between trying to make a country more peaceful as a whole, um, you know, trying trying to 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 improve the situation in a country with with one of the reasons being that 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 country, for example, is a big oil supplier to you. And then sending troops to actually guard your own, specifically Chinese installations or, or you know, kind of oil oil rigs or whatever. Um, so, so you you see what I mean? Like the you know, kind of this there's, there's the one seems to be affecting the entire country. The rest would be a targeted deployment. Uh, you know, kind of protecting particular assets. And uh, just to be clear, like in, in terms of in terms of the, are, are you saying that under under you the UN auspices, Chinese troops are doing the former and the latter or only the former and not the latter so are they are they you know would they be deployed to guard particular installations or would they be if even if the installations are in the north of the country the troops might be in the south of the country busy busy kind of actually keeping peace uh, let me answer it in two ways. So the first thing is that there were unconfirmed rumors that China tried to persuade the UN to send its troops in areas where there was a concentration of Chinese uh, oil companies in South Sudan. And that obviously was, was uh, people really thought it was, it was amiss for China to do that. It was a way of using the UN to protect its interest. So they didn't really go through. But the most important thing that happened is China was able to lobby that one of the missions, one of the mandates of the UN peacekeepers in South Sudan was that they will protect business investments and properties and foreign nationals. And if you then look at the biggest investor in, China, in, in South Sudan's oil industry is China. And, and by lobbying that the mandate of the UN peacekeepers be to protect those investments and those infrastructure was a way of going around, you know, going through the back door such that the UN mission, one of his mandates is to protect those interests, thereby protecting Chinese interests. So I think I think what we are seeing is perhaps uh, China using uh, non-threatening ways of protecting its investments in a way that people would look at it and say, oh, these are UN peacekeepers. They are not really intervening. They're doing it for the good of the country. But in actual effect, the whole purpose of sending them there, what has driven China to send them there, is not necessarily that they want peace in South Sudan for six years. Case, but that they want to protect their investments. That's the main objective. So what I try to do is to look at what has pushed China to send its peacekeepers. Would it have sent its peacekeepers in the Central African Republic, for instance, because there was a big conflict in, South, in Central African Republic that happened almost at the same time as the conflict in South Sudan. So why has it been focusing more on South Sudan and maybe not DR Congo? or other countries that have conflicts. So the main reason why they are doing focusing more and their peacekeepers are more in South Sudan is simply because they have big investments in South Sudan and they haven't really made efforts to hide it that much. Support for this podcast comes from the African China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. 
Follow the ACRP on Twitter at VitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Well, let's just go with that for a little bit and assume that that's what the Chinese are doing. And if, in fact, that's what they're doing, it makes all the sense in the world. Of course, countries pursue their own interest. If you are a realist, sure. I think I kind of fall more in the real, you know, on the realist side of, of, of international relations. But countries pursue their interests. And let's assume that that's the way they're doing it is through these multilateral organizations. And if we then step back and look at the past 500, eh, even give it the past 700 years of, of human history, typically when rising powers come to assert themselves in to protect their economies, to protect their interests, it's done much more along the lines of what the Europeans did in Africa or around the world by colonizing it. That's the ultimate intervention is they conquered them and they forcibly made people their subjects. Or it was like the Japanese in the East Asia co-prosperity sphere, where that was also a form of colonialism. Or maybe it was the hegemonic rule of the United States that created the whole international order in its name, which was the ultimate intervention as well. And I guess my point here is that if the Chinese are in fact doing it this way, it seems rather benign. And yet when you kind of hear some of the concerns coming out of Africa about yet a new colonial power coming in, a new militarism, the United States is certainly promoting this line about the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese seem far more benign in their approach to their rising power status than previous major world powers have done over the past five, six, seven hundred years. Can you give me your thoughts on that? I, I perfectly agree with you. China is doing it in a more humane way. And I really don't believe that we can call it colonial, colonialism or colonization of African countries. I think what China is doing is to protect its interests and try to balance them in a way that African countries would feel respected in some sense. Um, and many African countries feel respected by China. They feel that China is a country that they can engage with, that is not outrightly trying to protect its interest, but considers what the African leaders would, would think are their national interests. And particularly when you look at how China has responded to conflicts, for instance, in Mali or in South Sudan or in Libya, it was more much more different. They use... They try to listen to the concerns of the people and strike a balance. So, for instance, you'd hear the South Sudanese foreign minister saying, well, we don't see what China, what China is doing in our country as intervention. We see it as a brother helping us to resolve our conflict. And as long as African countries see China like that, I think it is a good thing. And obviously, African countries are benefiting from China being there because it's forcing the U.S., it's forcing France to reconsider the ways that they deal with African conflicts. And I think that's something positive that China is doing. Kobus, let me ask you a question on this. So Obert there laid out the, the case that China's protecting its interest in a more, much more benign way. But then there's a different aspect of this that I want to touch on because that's the more benevolent view of it. 
But and this touches on the questions of debt and the narratives that we've been hearing over the past six, seven months that, well, China's not using the same tools that it did in that other countries have used in previous generations. Now they're using the tools of globalization, namely in the form of debt to subjugate people. So the idea is that they're loaning countries like Ghana and Djibouti and Kenya vast amounts of money that these countries can never pay back. And as a result, in a, in a very much in a tributary way, that says the Chinese don't colonize, but they create tributary states according to their history. These small countries will then have to follow the lead of China or else that debt chain will be yanked around their necks and pulled a little bit tighter. So talk to me a little bit about these conflicting narratives that elites in African countries love dealing with the Chinese, as we heard from Obert in South Sudan. But a lot of the people on the ground who don't see the benefits of these, these loans uh, may see this non-intervention question in a very different way. Yes, I mean this is this is one example I think of of how the the, the non-intervention issue is becoming very very difficult to to actually define cleanly, because you know there's that so that that's a, that's one big example. The other example is is increasingly we're seeing um, you know in, in cases where there were direct interventions in other in other cases in other countries' um, internal affairs. You know, over the last the, the the few scandals we've seen around those those issues over the last few years have not been in the form of armies crossing borders. It's been in the form of you know of of someone you know poisoning an enemy of a North Korean uh, leader in uh, an airport in Malaysia, for example. You know, kind of these it's it's one person operatives moving you know slipping through the cracks, and so then it raises the you know kind of other questions about about what intervention actually means in the case of the China Africa uh, situation. You know, if if we so peacekeeping is one example of that, but but another example. Is the incident that that took place in um, in Kenya a year or two ago, where uh, where Taiwanese nationals accused of cybercrime ended up being you know kind of being arrested by Kenyan authorities and you know and 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 moved to China, um, so that you know raises then a lot of questions about which which internal affairs of which country is being interfered in by whom um you know my grammar is very messed up there um it's you know it what i mean is what does internal affairs mean now and what do external actors mean um and i think you know as 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 people as individuals are you know sometimes stand in for the state and sometimes the state shrinks itself down to to, to an individual operative in in the other case sometimes the state is this kind of omnipresent cloudy kind of diaphanous thing that, that you can't really put your hands on it does you know it, it, it floats free from a particular territory so that I think is just is is, is actually Obert I want to ask your opinion about that is, is, is how do you just on, on very brass tacks like how do you define intervention and in, in this particular case how do you define China I think um I, I look at intervention as a transformative action that a state takes with a clear objective to manipulate or to force a country to take a position that it would otherwise not be able to take. So one, one example is the Dalai Lama has been invited to South Africa several times. And each time the South African government is warned by China that uh, they don't appreciate the Dalai Lama going to South Africa. And he has been denied a visa, I think, on three occasions or more. And countries that have hosted the Dalai Lama have been punished one way or the other, Norway being one of the recent examples. 
So the issue then is, what is China using to force these stats to make a decision whether to invite a certain person or not, which is a clear internal issue. And China is using its, its economic power much more than the military power. And previously, we have been looking at intervention in military terms as a coercive way, clear, direct coercion of a state and using military power or threats of sanctions as the U.S. under Trump does. If you don't do this, we're going to take away aid or we're going to uh, impose sanctions on you. But China is using these subtle ways of forcing these states to reconsider their decisions and to self-censor as well. So you find that more and more countries are beginning to be very sensitive about what they say about China and how they deal with China. And it has it cuts across. It goes even to non-state actors, Google, National Airlines. How do they consider Taiwan? Do they consider it as a country or not? And what power is China using? Massive business opportunities that are there in China. And they simply say, if you don't behave in a way that we think you should behave, then we'll cut these lines of finance, these lines of uh, business and stuff like that. And so we are seeing increasingly countries self-censoring, something that wasn't really used by other powers. So there are people who are beginning to talk more and more about how China is using its geoeconomic tools in a more proficient and more efficient way than the U.S. has been using. So that's the reason why. For many countries in Africa, they see what China is doing not as intervention, when in actual effect, China is intervening or interfering with their internal affairs. So uh, one other example is in Zambia. Of course, uh, the Chinese didn't issue any statements on that. But I had an opportunity to interact with uh, Lumumba, the professor who has been talking so much about Chinese investments. He was deported from uh, Zambia. He tried to visit Zambia to give a talk on China, Africa, at a time when it was really sensitive. And that's the time when there were news reports that the Chinese were going to take over some assets of the, of the Zambian government. And he was deported. Why did Zambia deport him? So we can talk about many other reasons, but the main reason is simply because he was going to talk about something very sensitive that the Zambians felt was going to jeopardize their relations with China and therefore they needed to expel him. Now, you, you can't draw a direct line, you know, on how much influence the Chinese had, the Chinese government had on that decision to deport him. But the reason, but the final thing is that he was deported and why he was deported is perhaps that they feared that what he was going to say was going to be bad for, for their relations with China. So I think we're increasingly seeing more and more African countries, and not just African countries, but European countries as well, being censoring themselves and being careful how they deal with China. And this is how China is getting its way and in interfering in other countries' internal affairs. But, you know, and, and many people would not see it that way, but I think China is having its way because of its big economic power that it has become. Yeah, and what's so interesting here is how the Chinese are are using their ways of doing things, which are so different than the Western ways. And I think in Africa, there's a, a, you, foreign policies and the perceptions of interventions of outsiders 
have long been defined of their with their interactions with the Americans and the Europeans. Yes. And so I'm going to recommend one more time that people read Howard French's latest book. I think it's Under the Heavens or something like that. I don't know the exact name, but just look it up on Amazon. And what you'll hear in his book, and I think he's absolutely right about this, is he talks about how we're seeing a return today to very, to a lot of the imperial ways and of these tributary relationships. And these are these economic relationships. And it goes along the lines of something like this. Uh, if you align yourself with China's agenda, everything will be great. You'll have market access. You'll have support from the Chinese. You'll get high-level delegations. You'll even get to meet the emperor or the president. Mm -hmm. But if you don't <laughs> go along with the Chinese, life becomes very, very difficult. And that is a tributary relationship. And it's very different than a colonial relationship. And so a lot of times I think we have to get our vocabulary right here and we have to anchor these concepts really deeply into Chinese historical tradition rather than to frame them in a Western lens, which I think in many ways can be misleading. And so, so much of the behavior that you are talking about here reminds me of what Howard French was talking about in his book, which I thought was very interesting. So it, again, it's just, it's, you know, these are just fascinating times. Uh, you know, Obert, we're past our time with you, and I, I know it's very you're very busy. Just tell us a little bit about just final thoughts on where we're going. Where's this all heading in the next three to five years? Are we going to see a more assertive China in Africa crossing those lines of intervention? Are they going to meddle more in domestic politics, or are they going to retreat behind the protection of their non-interference doctrine that they've held so tightly for the past 60 years? I think we are, we, are, we are going to see a more assertive China because China is increasingly talking itself as referring to itself as a major power. And uh, the Chinese president has been talking about uh, we need to protect China's foreign in interests. We need to continue our capacity to provide such protection. And uh, the Djibouti uh, military base or logistics base, as the Chinese call it, is a clear example of where China is going. It is increasingly seeing itself as a big power and it wants to play the role of a major power. But as you said, it's going to play it in a different way. Debt is one of the ways and um, being the major trading partner of almost all the African countries and being the one of the major financiers of infrastructure development. And um, it's, it's, we are increasingly being tied to China in such a way that countries are going to be forced to consider China in whatever foreign policy decisions that they have to make and make sure that it aligns with Chinese interests. And so I, I think I think China is, is growing. And uh, if, if you look at what is happening here in the U.S., if you look at Donald Trump's foreign policy, Africa is really out for grabs, right? The U Trump is not really concerned so much about Africa. So that space that is being left out is being filled increasingly by China. The book is The End of China's Non-Intervention Policy in Africa. It is fresh off the presses. When does it go on sale? It's already on sale now. Like the ebook is now uh, on Amazon. It's now in major bookstores. And I think the hard copy will be out in about a couple of weeks. Fantastic. Well, I, I was given a sneak peek at the first chapter and I loved it. So I can't recommend it enough just on the first chapter alone. So hopefully the rest of the book is just as good. But for students of Chinese history and foreign policy in Africa and where things are going, particularly in these very turbulent times, uh, check out Dr. Hodzi's book. It is worth it. Dr. Obert 
Jose is a visiting researcher at the African Studies Center at Boston University and is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of World Cultures at the University of Helsinki in Finland. And uh, just think of what it's like for a Zimbabwean man to be up in the winters of Helsinki. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness, you know, that alone deserves praise and, and, and accomplishments. You must be a very cold man. But uh, thank, you. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. Are you on social media anywhere where people can follow you and stay in touch with what you're reading and writing these days? Yes, uh, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Obethom, O-B-E-R-T. H-O-M. I think that's the most effective way of getting in touch and keeping track of what I'm posting and what I'm doing. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Kobus, it is an absolutely fascinating discussion to think about what non-intervention means now in the 21st century. And typically when we think of interference, it's in the framework that Dr. Hodzi was talking about in terms of economics or even military. Uh, I'm reading a book right now by Kai Fu Li called uh, Artificial Intelligence Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. And we didn't talk at all with Dr. Hodzi about AI and how China is increasingly becoming a global power in AI. So imagine now that all of a country's data is basically being handled by either an American or a Chinese company. And interference now goes into a whole different realm that we're not even considering because it's so new that China can tweak the algorithms of, uh, you know, of, of, of anything that they're controlling in different parts of the world, just as the Americans can. I mean, think about how dependent we are on Google and Microsoft and all of that data goes back to the United States. Well, a lot of this new data is going to go to China. And so intervention and interference takes on a whole new meaning in that context as well. So this is really, we're in a totally new realm now that it is worthy of exploring. And I hope more academics and scholars are going to marry the old definitions of international relations and interference intervention with some of the new trends and the new technologies that are out there that are going to redefine the borders entirely. Yeah, I think I think a lot of them already are. Um, the you you know with, with all of this, you, it raises very big questions about what it means to be a state. You know what what does it mean if, if all if all the your your data of, of your citizens are are not necessarily located within the state, but it's kind of moving back and forth in the cloud? Then what is the role of the state? And and what you know, um, you know especially in a small country like in Africa, you know what what, what does it mean to be an African state? In in, you know, in the middle of this this kind of new power architecture, so it's it's really important to talk about. Okay, well, that'll do it for this edition of the show. Uh, at the end of every show, now I want to give a little shout out to uh, some different folks who listen to us every week. Kobus and I get a lot of mail on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook, and all the different platforms. And I am so sorry that I'm running now increasingly behind in replying. Back in the old days, Kobus, we like to take our time and reply to everybody because uh, it was great. We we're just so flattered that people took the time to both listen to the show and also to write us. Uh, we are still enormously flattered, by the way, but it's just actually getting to be a lot. But so every week I want to kind of mention one or two folks. And this week I want to give a little shout out to John Arminger. I think I'm saying your name right. Uh, brand new uh, diplomat on a diplomat assignment in Nairobi at the U.S. Embassy there. And he's been a longtime listener of the program. So we are 
very excited that the uh, that the American Embassy in Nairobi is at least one soul there is listening to the show. And so we welcome John to the community of listeners. And if you would like to, uh, again, reach out to Cobus and I, you can send my email is in the show notes. We haven't gotten Cobus's email to work yet on the China Africa Project server, but go ahead and email me. I forward everything to Cobus and we'll make sure we get it if you want to get in touch with us. Uh, we're running again a little bit behind, but we do love the mail. We do love hearing from you and answering your questions, particularly from students who are working on projects and we, we love to uh, to kind of give some feedback and things like that when we can. We're running a little bit late. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back again next week with another show. Uh, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.